Welcome to the Amber Shows. Tonight's reading, so exciting. Piece of Cake, a memoir by Cupcake Brown. Okay, just a quick recap. Remember, Cup uh, now is at, um, she went to a foster home after she was ran away from the pimp money, the prostitute candy, the abusive foster mother, Diane. She remembered the uh, phone number of her uncle, Junior. Uh, he had the same number. She called him. He sent her money to Western Union. Um, she went back to San Diego, but then he had to contact um, the authorities. And because of her, uh, she, her aunt saw webs and stuff on her back from where Diane had beat her. And uh, they put her in a group home. Um, then they let her go stay with another foster family until they sorted out in court as to who could get custody of her if her biological father, Mr. Burns, is going to get her back or uh, if Uncle Junior can get her. So now she went back to school. Uh, She's uh, just turning 12 years old. Uh, Then she was put in another foster home, um, the Bastners. Uh, Mrs. Basner, she's just as abusive as Diane, practically. Uh, her husband is um, sp- supposedly taking uh, Cup to cheerleading practices when really he would uh, take her to a parking lot and he would uh, make her have oral sex on him. And uh, she turned 12 years old. Uh, she didn't have to worry about getting pregnant because Mr. Basner only had her do oral sex on him and he gave her drugs and liquor to be able to do it to to you know be able to face what she was doing and so now um this is what's happening one night i was awakened by a policeman he was gently shaking me and telling me to get up at first i was disoriented what's a cop doing in my bedroom as my mind began to clear i could hear mrs bassinet downstairs, yelling and cussing at the top of her lungs. Something about bitch, hoe, slut, etc. Nothing unusual had happened that day, so I had no idea what all the fussing was about. The cop, a stocky white man, looked at me and said, Get up, sweetie. You have to go. Why, I asked. Your mother wants you to leave. She's not my mother, I retorted. Get up, get your clothes on, and get your things together, he replied, oblivious to my outrage. I'll wait outside. It didn't take long to get my things. I had left Diane's with no clothes, so all I had were the few outfits I'd been given while I was at Hillcrest. That that was the uh, Hillcrest was the group home they sent her to at first. So Mrs. Bassett had not spent one dime of the money she'd been given, had been paid for me, on me. So my things fit easily into a paper bag. I gathered my little bag and stepped outside my room. The bright hall lights hurt my eyes. The cop waited a moment, and then we made our way down the hall to the stairs. As we reached the end of the hallway, I froze. Glaring up from the bottom of the stairs was Mrs. Bassiner. Her eyes were blazing red, and she was really drunk, really pissed, and screaming at the top of her lungs. Get that bitch out of my house. Get her out. Mr. Bassinet sat on the couch, Drinking it, drinking hand, head down, not saying a word. I didn't understand what was going on. She was so enraged. Had she found out about cheerleading practice? But who told her? Not me. 
I hadn't told a soul. One second. I'm sorry. I lost my page. Okay. I hadn't told a soul. The couple, the cop's partner was at the bottom of the stairs trying to pacify Mrs. Bassett. Now, ma'am, he was saying, we are taking her, but we need you to calm down. Mrs. Bassner wasn't paying him any attention. Get that whole slut bitch, black bitch out of my fucking house. Get her out. I was scared that if I made my way past her, she'd punch me. I didn't mind being cussed out, but I didn't want to get punched. The cop must have sensed my apprehension. He took my hand, and we slowly began to descend the stairs. Mr. Bassner never looked up, and Mrs. Bassett never quit cussing. When we were four or five steps into the bottom, I stopped. The cop's partner took Mrs. Bassner's arm and moved her aside so we could pass. As we approached the police car, I asked the cop if I could sit in the front. No, he said, you have to sit in the back. Although it wasn't my first time in a cop car, it was my first time in the back. The metal grate separating me from the cop made me feel like I was in a cage. We sat there, neither of us saying anything. A few moments later, his partner came out and we took off back to Hillcrest Group Home. I never found out why Mrs. Bassnett was cussing or why I had to leave. All I knew was that was that was obvious, but I must have done something wrong to be caged and returned to the place of unwanted kids. I never saw the Bassnets again. Didn't matter. They left me with memories I'd never forget. Back at Hillcrest, no one ever asked me what happened at the Bassnets or why it had even been put out. It was like everything else that had happened in my life. Shit happened and no one gave a fuck. I was getting angrier and angrier. Someone decided it might be beneficial to have a psychiatrist talk to me and determine if there were any truth to my allegations of child abuse. The shrink was a short, fat, white man. As I entered his office, he welcomed, welcomed me as if I were an old friend. Don't jive me. I really wanted to shout that. We both knew. You ain't my friend, and you don't really give a fuck about me. Instead, I shut my mouth and plopped down on the large brown leather chair. He gave me a wide, caring smile. The gentle and kind-hearted way he looked at me gave me a, glim gave me a glimmer of hope. Despite my suspicions, I decided to give him a chance. I figured I'd tell the truth. One last time to see if someone anyone could help me out of this hellhole my life had become i began to talk i didn't mention the cheerleading practices i figured hell if they were having trouble believing my stories about life at diane's they sure weren't going to believe what was going on at the bassets neither did i tell the shrink about pete raping me candy the prostitute or turning tricks but i did tell the shrink about diane's abuse and about my running away and sleeping under park benches and the freeway underpass he listened with what looked like great interest and periodically jot down notes. I began to get excited, like maybe he would be, do something to keep me from going back to Diane's. Too quickly, my time was up. As I got ready to leave, I asked to see what it was he had written. He said, I didn't, I didn't get to see what he had written in the report, but what he'd give, he would give it to the judge. I felt about my, he said he would give it to the judge. I left feeling good about my decision to be half-assed honest. The good feeling didn't last long. That bastard shrink went back and told the court that he doubted any abuse had occurred and that in respect for my father's wishes, I should be returned to Diane's. He had an explanation for everything that any marks I'd had were probably caused by sticks and shrubbery when I'd slept on the grounds or under bushes. 
and that with Diane's impeccable record, it was doubtful that she had done the things I had claimed. Besides, none of the other foster children in her home would confirm my story. Based on the psychiatrist's report, Mr. Burns' lies, and Diane's impeccable Lancaster reputation, the decision was made that I would be immediately returned to Diane. Although Mr. Burns, the biological father, did show up to court to lie, he didn't have the balls to come to Hillcrest to get me and take me to Lancaster. Diane herself came to pick me up. So accommodating, heifer. The ride to Lancaster was just like the first one. No one said a word. Diane drove the entire way without stopping. By the way she was driving, I could tell she was pissed. Connie was with her, sitting silently in the front seat in her new Nordstrom clothes. Spoiled little bitch. I was already thinking about how and when I'd run away again. There were still four boys and four girls at Diane's, but of the original eight foster children, six were new. Because I was a repeat, I didn't need the don't be in the living room speech, the tour of the designated places, the initiation punch, though that ain't saying much because sooner or later at Diane's, you got punched anyway. We got to Lancaster. Diane took a nap. I went in and sat in the den to get the 411 and what had been happening since I'd left. Who'd run away, who'd got sent back to their families, who'd been beaten, tortured, or starved, and so on. Speaking of beatings, I snapped when the conversation had turned to the sub to that subject. Why didn't y'all speak up when they asked you if she beat y'all? Come on, vet, a girl who had been one of the original eight replied. You know how the system works. If we would have told her that we, we would we wouldn't have they wouldn't have believed us. Hell, this is my fifth foster home, and I've been hitting every one. But what does my social worker say when I tell her they beaten my ass? She paused to make a snooty face as she intimidated her social and imitated her social worker's voice. Stop exaggerating, or she'd be, or you should be grateful someone's willing to take care of you. Besides, she continued, continued in her own voice, Mama would beat us, and you know it. I slumped to the floor because I knew she was telling the truth. Then what, she said, hit me. Mama, I guess. Why'd you call that bitch Mama? Seems Diane had instituted a new rule since my departure. Everyone had to call her Mama, not Mrs. Dobson or Diane, as it had been when I left. I didn't have to ask why. I knew why. It made her look friendlier and more charming and caring and loving when the system came a-calling. But more important, it probably gave her a demented sense of pleasure because she knew how much we hated doing it. She even got to the point where she made the children sign their school pictures to Mama, thanking her thanking her for everything she'd done. And by the way, don't call me Levette anymore, I announced. I figured now was a good time to reveal my original true name. My real name is Cupcake, and that's what y'all call me from now on. I'd stood up and put my hands on my hips. My demeanor told them I was not playing. Cupcake, they all chimed in unison. I steadied my legs, ready to pounce. If any of them said anything smart or, or shitty about the name my mama gave me, I was going to pop them good. That's cute, they replied again in unison. I relaxed my stance since it was clear they, were, they weren't going to try to talk shit about my real name. But don't tell Diane, I warned. Mama, they quickly corrected me while looking around, afraid she'd be hearing what I said. Call her Mama. If you don't, she'll hit you. I'd forgotten the new rule that fast. Didn't matter too much, though. Like I said before, no matter how hard you tried to be good, sooner or later you'd get hit. While I was away, some of the children had begun stealing food. Since no one would own up 
being the culprit. Indeed, each child blamed the other. Diane put a lock and chain around the refrigerator. This wasn't difficult because the refrigerator and freezer stood side by side, so she just slipped a metal chain around the entire thing, brought it through both door handles, and locked it with a padlock. Only she and Connie had the keys. Diane's lock and chain around the refrigerator also provided Connie with another form of sick amusement. Connie's key hung on a gold chain around her neck to taunt us. She'd walk around swinging the chain in a small circular motions. That was especially torturous on extremely hot days when we'd pass by staring at the fridge and freezer, knowing there was ice-cold water, sodas, and multi-flavored popsicles inside. This caused even more rivalry and dissension among the foster children because if you were in Connie's corner, you got to get stuff from the fridge whenever she did. Connie had instituted a heinous and hateful trick of her own, hot foots. One night, she turned it on me. While I was asleep, Connie and two or three of the foster children, the ones who at that time were in her good graces, crept up to the foot of my bed and slowly, cautiously, and quietly lifted the covers. Taking a book of matches and tearing them off one by one, they carefully placed two or three matches in between my toes. Then they lit them. I was slammed into unconsciousness by the pain of fire on my feet. I bolted straight up in the bed, screaming, crying, and waving my hands, shaking them in an attempt to put out the blaze. Connie and her crew howled with delight. Realizing that blowing at my feet with all my might wasn't working, I jumped up and ran to the bathroom and literally jumped into the toilet. By the time I limped back to bed, the culprits were rolling around on the floor, holding their stomachs, cracking up and laughing. As the hot foots became more regular and frequent, Connie's cronies learned to block the bathroom door to deny the burning kid access to the toilet where they, leaning from, learning from my lead, would jump in with their flaming feet. On several occasions, bedding began to burn from the flames. To prevent this, Connie and her crew would stand by the bucket of water to throw on the bed. This added to their fun because even if the bedding didn't catch on fire, they threw the water on you. Since we each had only one set of bedding, the victim would have to sleep on wet bed linen until it dried. Now more than ever, it was important to win Connie's approval since I refused to play her game. I got more than my share of hot foots. I fought back, back as best I could. I began sleeping with socks on, with, with my covers double-tucked at the bottom of the bed or both. problem with this strategy was that Connie and her crew would chill out on the hot foots for a couple of weeks, making you think the danger was over. Soon as you slipped up and forgot to wear your socks or double-tuck your sheets, they'd get you. Diane was aware of this behavior and seemed to love it. She called it a game. No one got hit for the first few weeks after my return. It seems Diane was worried about being watched. Whoever had questioned her about my accusations of abuse had obviously scared her, for a little while anyway. It wouldn't last long, didn't need to, to, didn't need to since she had several things working for her benefit. She was such a good actress, and she lived in a nice, big, clean house. What's more, she was always willing to take children that were difficult to place. Social workers loved her. But about four months after my being returned to Lancaster, the system unequivocally confirmed it really didn't give a shit about me. Diane had been ranting and raving about my failure to scrub the bathroom 
baseboards to her satisfaction. When I insisted that I had scrubbed them, she said I was talking back. She chased me through the house, swinging that damn bull whip. I was fast, but not fast enough. She caught me and delivered a few good whacks. A couple of days later, I happened to go to school. I was enrolled in the nearby junior high school, but I hated school, so I usually ditched. However, for some reason, this particular day, I decided to go. Unbeknownst to me, the school had been giving kids random medical checkups. It seems they'd kept trying to give me one, but I was never there. Somehow, word got out to the nurse that I was present that day, so she called me to her office. I took off my clothes, put on the little blue paper dress she'd given me, hopped up on the table, and waited. Some friends had scored some killer coke, and we were just dying to sh- and were dying to share it with me. So I was hoping the nurse would hurry up and get the damn thing over with. The nurse entered the room and began her exam. She checked my blood pressure, humming softly to herself. She used her little stereo- stethoscope to listen to my chest, periodically moving in here. There were while instructing me to inhale and exhale. When she removed the paper dress to listen to my back, she gasped. Where'd you get all these marks? she asked. Diane's recent whipping was fresh in my mind. My foster mother, I replied matter-of-factly. Oh my God, she exclaimed. Her outburst startled me. I hadn't expected her to care. The nurse said she was going to call the police and instructed me to put my clothes back on. When the police arrived, they spoke with the nurse while I waited in another room. I couldn't hear them, but I could see them. The policeman was studying the nurse very seriously as if, she, as if trying to decide if she were lying. I wondered what might happen and whether my life would be different from before. Then, one of the policemen approached me and said they were going to take me to Diane's to get my stuff. Cool, I replied with with still unsure of what was going on, but a little pissed about missing the coke party. As we pulled into Diane's driveway, I could just imagine what was going on inside. I was nervous because I remembered how she reacted the last time a cop brought me home. Oblivious to my uneasiness, the cop walked me to the door and rang the bell. Diane opened the door and laid on her best mother of the year charm, but I could tell she was nervous. She looked scared. One of the cops escorted me to my room to get some clothes while she, while the others stayed up front talking to Diane. The other children stayed in the den, scared to death. Connie was standing next to her mother, hands on her hips, visibly annoyed and glaring at me. I don't think the cops ever noticed the lock and chain that hung around the refrigerator. It wasn't until we left Diane's that I was informed of the plan. It seemed the nurse had suspected some type of abuse. The cops said the policy required me to be removed while they investigated, so they were taking me to a shelter home. The shelter home was in Simi Valley and was headed by the pleasant little by this pleasant little Mexican lady named Maria who spoke broken English. Maria had four small children who also spoke broken English. I didn't care about being in the shelter home. I had become desensitized to different homes, different cities, different people. I had learned to make the best of where I was. Maria gave me half-cooked egg for breakfast. At the time, I didn't know they were called over easy. All I knew was that they reminded me of Diane's half-cooked chicken, and I just couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to eat it. Maria was nice about it, never forced me to. She was, even, she was a great cook, though. She made the best chicken enchiladas I'd ever had. Maria never hit me, and since she couldn't speak English very well, if she ever did decide to curse me out, I didn't know it. I left the house every day telling her I was going to school, and then I'd just go hang out and get high. One day, a social worker came to see me. She told me her name was Cindy. 
and she was quick to inform me that she wasn't my assigned worker. She was just helping me with the overload. Maria had agreed to allow her house to be used only on an emergency basis, meaning she wanted to keep children only for a few days or a week at the most. As I'd been there more than a month, she couldn't keep me any longer. Unfortunately, there was nowhere else to take me or no one else who was willing to take me. So Cindy said they had decided to return me to Diane's. I literally gasped. What? Y'all just took me from her? Remember the marks on my back? Remember? Why was I the only one that could remember stuff? And I was I was the druggie. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Cindy had the saddest look on her face as she explained that their hands were tied. I had to be returned to Diane's because the nearest only available home was in another county. And for some unexplained, unexplained reason, I couldn't be placed there. She said Diane had admitted to hitting me and supposed she might have been a little rough when doing so, but strongly denied any abuse. With that half-ass admission, together with her foster mother of the year persona and her impeccable record, they believed her. As far as I know, no one mentioned Hillcrest and the previous investigation or accusations of abuse. But, Cindy said sternly as if no make, as if to make me feel better, we're told that we will be watching her. Y'all ain't, y'all ain't been watching her. I wanted to scream, but I said nothing. I just hung my head in despair. The next day, Cindy and a cop drove me to Diane's. I felt like I was going to the electric chair. I knew how much Diane hated the police, and thanks to the dumbass school nurse that now been there, that they'd now been there again because of me. Now she'd get to make me pay for it. I'd get beat good for sure this time. As Cindy and the cop sat with Diane in the formal living room, informing her that they would be watching her. And as the other children sat scared to death in the den, I slipped out to the bedroom. I slipped out of the bedroom window. I never saw Cindy again. I ran with all my might. A house located on the bottom of the hill had hedges all around in its backyard. I hopped the fence and hid under the hedges. I'd have to lay low for a while because it was early afternoon and still light outside. I couldn't hitchhike out of town till dark. After a while, I could hear Diane in her new car with some of the kids as they drove back and forth pretending to look for me. They were laughing and joking too much to be doing any serious searching. I stayed under the hedge t- under the hedge till it was completely dark and I was sure that neither Diane nor any cops were still looking for me. Then I quietly slipped out from under the hedges, hopped back over the fence and made my way to the familiar stump. I had no fear and no hesitation and I was angry. Return me to that bitch. I shouted to the sky, "Fuck you. I can take care of myself." I stuck out my thumb and quickly hitchhiked out of town. Since returning, since running away the first time, I'd heard rumors about hitchhikers getting raped and beaten. I knew I needed to protect myself, so before leaving Maria's, I had stolen a butter knife and put it in my sock. That was my protection. Not a steak knife, a butter knife. What the fuck was going was I going to do with a butter knife? Still, you couldn't tell me I wasn't tough shit. I caught a ride with a Mexican guy who told me 
he'd take me to Ventura. I turned a trick with him. I decided to hang out in Ventura. Hanging out meant doing whatever came my way. Hanging out in front of the store, front of in, in front of a store with newfound friends, getting high with whomever, whenever, getting down with the petty crime for more, get high money, whatever. I'd been hanging out in Ventura for a few days when my money got low. My doper friends had no money-making schemes to hatch, and no one was picking up hitchhikers. So I decided to steal something. My plan was to steal some cigarettes and beer from a small liquor store and just hang out. But the clerk was smarter and quicker than I thought. She caught me putting beer cans down my pants. She had her son hold me while she called the cops. The cops arrived to find me sobbing uncontrollably. Like Diane, I had become an excellent actress. I usually lied to cops and told them I was three to four years older than I really was. By this time, I revealed my real age. I sang my sad story about finding my mother dead and having no family and no place to go. The cops felt sorry for me. I thought they would let me go. But my plan backfired. Instead of releasing me, they called in my name to find out where I belonged and then personally then personally returned me to Diane's. It didn't bother, I didn't bother begging and pleading with them not to. I knew it was pointless. So after two weeks of absolute freedom, I was returned to hell. And true to form, Diane beat the shit out of me. Didn't matter. Almost immediately, I was gone again. I never again mentioned Diane's abuse to anyone. This became the pattern. Every few weeks, I'd run away. When I was caught, I'd be placed in a in a home in, in whatever city I was caught in. If no home was available, I was returned to Diane's. The first couple of times, I'd call Daddy Collect. He would cry as he told me his friends were tied, his hands were tied, and that no matter what he or Junior tried, everyone said there was nothing they could do. After a while, I quit calling Daddy. It was useless, and I didn't want to bring my pain and trouble to him. Running away, turning tricks, hitchhiking seemed to go hand in hand. Since my experience with candy and money, I would never again stand on a corner to get tricks because it was too risky. Money's threat to kill me if he caught me on one of his corners, and info I'd heard here and there on the street convinced me that pimps would kick my ass if I worked their corner without being in their stable. Also, being young and of school age, I knew I was more likely to be noticed by the cops if I stood in one place for an extended period. Besides, it was it was easy enough getting my tricks hitchhiking, because most folks who picked up hitchhikers wanted to turn a trick. For me, hitchhiking ended up being a double bonus. I got to make money, and I got a free ride. Although I was never going anywhere in particular, I just wanted a ride that was going away from whatever home I'd been placed in. Most of the time, I also got a free high or drink. I was no longer ashamed or bothered in any way by turning tricks. I was surviving and doing what I had to do. If it did start to bother me, I would just get high. By now, I got high on something every day. Running away so often made me learn the laws of the streets very fast. For example, I learned it was best to sleep somewhere covered and not too out in the open because other homeless people would fuck with you or try to steal your shoes. I learned to eat cheaply when I did eat which most times meant half-eaten hamburgers out of trash cans at McDonald's. I'd watch some homeless people do it. At first, I said, yuck, and turned up my nose at the thought. 
but being hungry and with limited funds, I soon followed their lead. Besides, I tell myself after the never-ending beans and half-cooked meat you've had to endure, these trash can burgers, they taste like steak. After that, I, I never felt much shame or disgust about it. I simply remembered that I was trying to survive. Anyway, eating was never my number one priority. Getting high was. During these escapades, I learned about free clinics that gave free birth control pills. Problem was, I stayed high so much that I had a hard time keeping up with them. I often forgot where I'd put them. Other times, I'd forget to take them, so I'd take two, three pills in an effort to make up for one missed one. I figured it really didn't matter, though. I didn't think I could get pregnant. During my periods, I suffered horrific cramps and bled profusely for days. I suspect that Pete has seriously damaged something inside of me. Diane never seemed to mind me running away. It just gave her extra pleasure in mistreating me when I returned. And I was always returned because I had a problem. I was a problem child. No one wanted problem children. They all wanted the cute children, and I had long since been cute. Nor did Diane fear any more accusations of abuse. The system wasn't asking, and the children weren't telling. Nor was she concerned about my being healthy or at my safety during my running episodes. Diane got paid very well for me and Larry, so as long as the system continued paying for her keeping me, even during my absences as they did, she could care less about where I was or what I was doing. I later learned that she got paid twice for me and Larry. Larry and I were entitled to Social Security payments as orphans. Somehow, Diane figured out how to get those checks in the foster care checks. So she didn't really mind my running away as long as she still got her checks. In fact, she stopped calling me by my name. She used When she used my name and not bitch, slut, hoe, or darky, and began calling me runaway child, running well, after the title of the song by The Temptations. Although Larry was also following this runaway return pattern, we always ran away and returned at alternating times. So once I left Hillcrest in San Diego, Larry and I never saw each other again. You grow up fast living on the streets, very fast. I walked differently and talked differently than the little girls who found than the little girl who had found her mother dead. I didn't think of turning tricks as prostitution. I saw it as a job. It afforded me food and shelter. If I turned enough tricks, I could get a halfway decent hotel room. If not, I slept where I could. If I turned enough tricks, I could eat. If not, I resorted to trash can burgers. Most importantly, turning tricks allowed me to buy drugs and booze that helped me forget my past, ignore the present, and be absolutely oblivious to the future. I ran away so much that I got quite comfortable with hitchhiking. I'd stick out my thumb like it wasn't shit, and I'd get into anybody's car, no fear whatsoever. I had my butter knife. One day after a night of heavy drinking, I woke up in a strange place. I was very groggy, so it took me a moment to realize I was in a bed. But whose who's bed? I didn't know. I tried to remember the events of the night before, but I couldn't. I lay there trying to remember who I'd been with and what we'd done, when I suddenly realized that everything around me was white, the walls, the floors, even the ceiling. I kind of thought I knew where I was. However, the thought became a certainty when a short white woman walked in wearing a white dress, white stockings, and white shoes. A nurse. Hmm. Excited that maybe I'd at least figured out where I was. I bet she's a nurse. 
I waited until she leaned in close to check my IV before speaking. Are you a nurse? I asked meekly. My voice was low and squeaky, probably because I felt so weak. Why, yes, she said, obviously happy that I'd recognized what she was. Where am I? She responded that I was in a hospital. When I asked her why, she explained that I was found passed out on the street in the wee hours of the morning. I never thought to ask which morning. What's wrong with me? She paused for a moment as if trying to decide what or how to tell me. Then she softly responded that I'd gotten alcohol poisoning. Alcohol poisoning? Crazy white woman. Wasn't no such thing. At least I'd never heard of such a thing. Rat poisoning, yes. I even tried it on an enemy or two. But alcohol poisoning? No way could I could alcohol be poisoned. Only a few sips and any fool could tell that it was happy juice. She was fussing and carrying on about how I was too young to be drinking. How old are you, by the way? I lied and said I was 16. Where did you get it? Get what? The alcohol. She stared at me with a stern look on her face. I said I didn't remember. It wasn't a lie. Then she wanted to know my name. I told her it was Susie Sally Smith. Susie Sally Smith? She repeated, your mom liked S's, didn't she? She laughed at her joke. I didn't. As she began fussing with the IV bottle, she said that now that they knew my name, she could contact my parents and tell them where I was and explain what happened. I'm sure they'll be terribly worried, she said with enthusiasm. I remained silent. She fused. She fussed with the IV bottle a little longer, and then headed for the door. Just before she stepped through the doorway, she turned around and gave me a big smile. She instructed me not to worry, to get some rest, and that the doctor would see me in the morning. Like hell he will, I snapped to myself. I waited for her to leave and then yanked the IV out of my arm. I was too frantic to pay attention to the pain. I had to get the hell out of there before they figured out who I really was. I jumped out the bed and fell straight to the floor. Shit, I screamed. Aware that I didn't have time to get to my bearings back, I crawled to the closet, hoping my clothes were on the floor or at least within arm's length. Luckily, there they were, piled in a heap on the floor like a pile of trash. I slowly got dressed, unaware that my shirt was on the was on backward and inside out. By the time I got my pants on, my mind had cleared a little more. Slowly, I stood up and using the wall for support. Once I, Once I was sure... I could stand. I staggered to the elevator. Amazingly, no one saw me. The nurses were too busy rushing to something they overheard on a speaker and was announcing a code blue. Once I hit the front door, I knew I was clear. I trudged down the road a bit and stuck out my thumb. It wasn't long before a ride picked me up. Where are you going? The young white man behind the wheel asked as I hopped in. Wherever you are, I replied. After we'd ridden for a few miles, he pulled out a joint and asked if I smoked. Of course, I exclaimed as I took the joint and lit it. I must have been out of it for a while because the first hit made me cough like crazy. You okay, he asked. Alarmed at my intense hacking, I noticed that I was... You need something to rinse it down, he said as he reached under his seat and pulled out a beer. You do drink, don't you? I didn't even respond. I just grabbed the can and popped it open. And they said I had alcohol poison. I thought as I took a long swig of the beer, bullshit, this stuff ain't poison. It's paradise. I didn't know what city I was in when I left the hospital. I didn't know to what city the driver I'd hitched a ride with was going. I didn't care about either, so long as I was going.
He drove for about a half hour or so. Unfortunately, he didn't want to conduct any business. No problem. The next ride did. A party hitched and conducted business for the next few days. The last ride dropped me off in Hollywood, a place I came to love. At night, the streets were filled with people, young and old, hanging out and partying. There seemed to be a nightclub on every corner, each with long lines of anxious partiers wanting to get in and get their groove on. But luckily for people like me, who either didn't have proper ID or didn't want to spend what little money we had on a cover charge, there was always a free house party going on somewhere nearby. Nor were the parties limited to houses. Get a group of kids together and we'd party in the park, in the streets, or behind a liquor store. The greatest thing about the place was that runaways were everywhere. White kids, Mexican kids, black kids, boys and girls, gay, straight, some turning tricks to survive, others boosting for a living, some doing both. Some hoping to make it big in movies or music, others planning to get rich quick, though they weren't sure how, some chasing dreams, though they hadn't yet figured out what their dream were. Regardless of their star-studded dreams or get-it-rich-quick schemes, they all seemed to get high, drink, or both. The police didn't seem to mind that so much unexplained kids were out at night. I mean, if they caught a kid doing a crime, they'd take him or her in. If someone called the cops, they would come. But other than that, they didn't mess with us. We walked the streets at night without fear of being pulled over and questioned about why we weren't at home. Maybe it was because they realized that trying to run us off was useless, or maybe they were off chasing real criminals. But most likely it was because there were too many of us. Hollywood was a place where I felt completely free and totally uninhibited to be whatever I wanted to do. I wanted whenever I wanted, for as long as I wanted. Still a bird, I found those with little feathers, no matter where I was. So Hollywood and I partied, partied hard. So hard, in fact, that the the specifics are just a blur. I remember faces, but not names. Party scenes, but not exact locations. One night, I was smoking weed and guzzling tequila shots in an apartment with a bunch of long-haired, hippie-looking white kids. Another night, I partied in a park with a group of gay Mexican and black boys. What I do remember is that I was having a ball. I was like a kid in a candy store. One day, a druggie friend invited me to a party that night that he promised would be jamming. When I got there, I grabbed a drink, stood in the corner, checked out the crowd. It was a nice mix, blacks, whites, couple of Mexicans, an equal amount of men and women. There was coke in the kitchen and booze in the dining room. Once the dope cook kicked in and the booze told me I was feeling good, I decided I wanted to dance. But no one was dancing. Everyone was standing around talking. I didn't want to talk. I wanted to dance. Fuck them, I told myself. I began dancing by myself. It wasn't long before others followed my lead. The dance floor was soon crowded. A man was standing up against the wall, chilling and checking out the center of the living room when the crowd, where the crowd danced. Although I was in the center of the crowd, I was still dancing by myself. Jeffrey Osborne and LTD were informing us that when the party, they partied hardy. I wasn't aware that the man against the wall had begun checking me out. Once the record was over, it was time for another drink. I left the dance floor and headed for the bar, a long table covered with booze. As I passed the man against the wall, he grabbed my arm and said he liked the way I danced. I thanked him and continued on my mission to the bar. He followed me and we began to talk. His name was Tim. He was 25. I actually told him my real age, 13. I had become partial to older women, older men. 
He was a tall, thin, light-skinned black man with light brown eyes and thick round lips. He wore his hair in a huge afro. We hit it off immediately. We talked about all sorts of stuff, where we came from. He was from Texas, me from San Diego. Our favorite drugs, he liked weed, I liked anything that was free. And favorite foods, his was hamburgers, mine was anything that was free. He said he liked my sense of humor and carefree personality. I felt comfortable around Tim because he didn't ask too many personal questions, like where my mom and dad were. Though he did comment that I looked and acted older than 13. He never asked me why a girl so young was at a party of obviously much younger people. In fact, he only asked questions about superficial immaterial stuff. Another thing I liked about Tim was that he didn't try to have sex with me right away, probably because we were too busy getting high. Still, it intrigued, intrigued me because that's the first man... That's the first thing men usually did. We spent the evening getting drunk and high and laughing and talking. I fell in love instantly, or what I thought was love in my mind. If I was willing to have sex with a guy without expecting to be paid, it had to be love. I loved him for several reasons. First, he saw me as more than just a piece of ass. He asked about my hopes, my dreams, my fears. Though I'd never actually thought about that kind of stuff, I thought up quick answers to give him. I told him I hoped to stay in Hollywood forever. I dreamed of becoming an actress and feared running out of dope. But mostly I think I loved Tim because he said he loved me. Tim lived with his elderly mother and hung out all day running his business, which was selling pills, uppers and downers, known on the street as black beauties, yellow jackets and red devils. As his girlfriend, I got as many pills as I wanted for free. I also loved Tim because what money he didn't use to re-up and buy more pills he used to refill my arsenal of other favorites booze weed lsd cocaine another great thing about tim was that he didn't like the idea of me turning tricks so he fed me and let me live with him so i wouldn't have to sleep on the streets he just sneaked me into his mom's house at night after she went to bed we lived this way, selling dope, hanging out, getting high for a little over a month. I loved my life in Hollywood and was beginning to think that maybe this was something I could do for a while. One day, Tim and I were hanging out at a nearby liquor store. Because the store was so close to this house, we went regularly to buy booze. So the clerks knew him and didn't complain about us hanging out in front. Most of his clients knew he hung out there too. It wasn't unusual for a client and Tim to take a walk around the back of the building to handle business. We were hanging out at the store, drinking beer and talking shit with acquaintances who interminably passed by when Tim told me that he had to go home to get something he'd forgotten. He didn't say what it was or why it was so important that he get it right then. I was sitting on a milk carton, enjoying my buzz in the warm Southern California sun. I wasn't in the mood to move, so I told him I'd sit tight and wait for him to return. He never did. A few hours later, one of his clients came running up to me, shouting that he'd just seen Tim get busted with some pills. Seems he sold Yellow Jacks to an undercover. He was swiftly carted off to jail. Those sales and possessions and charges, along with a couple of outstanding warrants, meant that he would be locked up for a while. I had nowhere to go. I was hanging out at a park a few days later, trying to figure out what to do when the cops noticed me. It was a school day, and I wasn't in school. They scooped me up, and before I knew what had happened, I was returned to Diane's. But this return was like no other before. Before long, I was even happy about it. Well, wow. Cup 
is this is all happening to Cup, and she's just 13 years old. So, I hope you guys enjoyed a piece of cake, and I'll be back next Friday so we can figure out what's going to happen to Cup next. The only thing that's so sad about this is that this is a true story, but then... There's always, the sun always comes out tomorrow. So hopefully we'll finally, one Friday, be able to get to some happiness for Cup. All right, you guys, have a great night. And thank you for coming to the Amber Show's book reading, A Piece of Cake.